Well, about 10 years ago, I sat down with a friend in my study, and this friend of mine had this deep burden that he'd been praying about and considering what the Lord would have him do. And for about 45 minutes, he shared with me how he felt the Lord had a wife and two children, but he had this deep burden for adoption, that he wanted his family to adopt a child, whether it was domestic or international or foster. He hadn't figured that out yet, but knowing kind of our path, he sat down with me to, to learn more about what that might look like in his life and the life of his family. And he began to tell me all about this burden, all about his prayer life and even some of the things that they had or he had done to explore this world of adoption. And I asked him after about 45 minutes of sharing the burden and sharing prayer and thinking and considering him, just ask him some obvious questions. I said, hey, have you, have you let your wife know about this? And he said, well, my daughter's on board. My daughter's on board and she's been praying with me and she has the same burden, so surely God will change my wife's heart. And I'm like, what do you mean? It was at that point in, in my head, I was thinking some things that I didn't say. I'm like, man, you've got to have your wife, the caregiver of your home, she's got to be on board with this thing. That is what I was thinking. And he said, no, she, she doesn't feel that burden yet, but I'm sure it'll work itself out. <laughs> you know, God gives us burdens sometimes. He burdens our heart with his desire for us to pursue a certain path, and he also allows us to take those burdens before him. And yet oftentimes, most of the times, there are some tangible checkpoints. Talk to my wife. Tangible, tangible checkpoints or even barriers for us to understand what God's will really is in certain circumstances, right? There are tangible checkpoints for this guy that he would pass this through, what his wife thought and how his wife prayed through this before he did it. We see this in our own lives. We see this in lives of like missionaries who have a burden for like India or wherever they want to go to be a missionary and they have this burden, and they pray about it, and then they ask God to open doors, and yet sometimes the answer to that is yes, and sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes the answer is not yet. And sometimes the answer is I don't know. You ever had a burden that God put on your heart? It may not be adoption. It may not be, may not be becoming a missionary, but there was a clear burden that God put on your heart, and you prayed about it, and you even planned a little bit, around it, and yet there were some tangible barriers or tangible checkpoints to really discover if this is what God's path was for you. And maybe the answer, as you think about those things in your life right now, maybe the answer was no. Maybe the answer was a resounding yes, that doors open for those things to happen, and maybe the answer was not yet, or maybe the answer was in a different way. We come to the book of Nehemiah this morning, and what we saw last week as we opened up this book is this godly leader in Nehemiah had a burden. He had a deep burden for God's people who had been exiled for over 100 years, and he had found out that the rebuilding of the city and the house of God and the walls that surrounded to protect the city of Jerusalem, that work had stopped. And he found out this information, and he prayed. He prayed diligently. And we found out last week he had this position of influence. So the question this morning is, is God 
or how is God going to answer Nehemiah's prayer? Is he going to answer it in what he wants to do, which is to go before this man, verse 4 says to us in Nehemiah chapter 1, and ask him to leave his position and go? What are the tangible problems or barriers that Nehemiah might have? Well, let's start with this. The guy he works for is the king of the not-so-free world, King Artaxerxes of Persia. He's the king of the known world. He has more power than anyone. And Nehemiah just happens to be his cupbearer, his head of secret service. But here's the deal. Nehemiah didn't show up to the Persian government job fair to get this job, did he? He was appointed, he was bound to this job because the Persians gave it to him and demanded that he serve in this way. And it wasn't as though when he got this job or was bound to this job that he negotiated vacation time or even a sabbatical to leave. No, he was bound to the king's wishes. And not only that, he was going to ask the king to reverse the king's decision to stop building the walls. Do you think there's some tangible barriers here to his burden, to what he desires to do, to the prayers that he has prayed? Absolutely. So what's going to happen? Let's look at it. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. And we'll be in verses 1 through 8. We've seen the heart of this godly leader. And now we're going to see the plans and how his plans in the providence of God work together. This is part two of Marks of a Godly Leader, the plans of action of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. Let me read it, and then we'll walk back through it. Chapter 2, verse 390. Page 398, if you need it, if you need a Bible close to you, page 398 there. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, this is April, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, remember he's a cupbearer, he gives wine to the king, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? That's a danger. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should, I, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, this is perceptive, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is a quick prayer, not the long prayer before. This is a quick one. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king... If your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, he's gulping right here, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. And the king said with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? He must have done a good job being the cupbearer. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through as I come to Judah. Let the letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams and the gates of the forest of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house I shall occupy. And look at the answer. And the king granted me what I ask. Why? For the good, I love this phrase, look at it, for the good hand of my God 
was upon you. The first thing I think you see that's just really a mark of a godly leader, and it's really peppered through this text in the first seven or so verses is this. First thought for this morning is this. Godly leaders are respectful and honest and loyal to those in authority above them. Do you see how he continues to follow, he continues to do his job? Nehemiah wasn't so free and yet he continues to do his job. Do you remember when he heard about what was going on in Jerusalem 800 miles away? It was the month of December. It's now April. He'd prayed about what to do about it. He's waited four months. We don't know why. We don't know if the king wasn't there. He left the winter palace and went somewhere else. We don't know if he just spent all of that time praying and strategizing. I think he did. But four months later, we come to the month of Nisan, four months. And what is he doing? Just because he had a burden didn't, didn't mean he left. He continued to serve his king. Do you see it? He went before him and gave him the cup to drink. And yet the king saw that he was what? That he was sad. Here's, the, here's what's going on here. It, it kind of doesn't make sense to our ears. And we're like, well, he was sad, and the king could perceive that he wasn't sick, and so the kings asked him, why is he sad? Why is Nehemiah afraid? That doesn't make any sense. It sounds like the king is just being thoughtful. Well, back then, when you're the king, everybody's after your life, particularly people closest to you, so you live in suspicion. And so it's like when you go to Chick-fil-A and they say, my pleasure, they put the happy face on even if their day is bad. That's what Nehemiah was supposed to do before the presence of the king because it would have made him suspicious if he was sad. Maybe he had his own plans to off the king. That's the king's thought process always in this situation. So you weren't sad in the presence of the king. You see this with Esther as well before this. And so he was sad, which was a danger for his own life. And so he answers... He's honest. Do you see his honesty? He doesn't make up a story here. He's honest. And look at what he says. He tells them his heart burden. He tells them that he has sadness in his heart. And notice what he does. Notice his loyalty. When it says, let the king live forever, to you and me, it sounds like he's just kind of sucking up to the king like, I don't want to die. That's not what he's doing. He's saying to the king, I am loyal to you. Even though I'm in exile and I'm a Jew, and I don't have, like, great labor laws here to work for you. I'm loyal to you. I respect you, and I'll be honest to you. He was a faithful, he was faithful to his boss. He worked hard. And if you keep looking down here, what it says, every time he asks, what does he say? He's respectful. He has manners. If it pleases the king, if I have found favor in your sight, meaning if you think I'm loyal, if you think I'm a hard worker, Grant this. He's respectful. It's like, yes, sir. You see it down even further in verse 7. If it pleases the king. See, godly leaders are respectful and honest and loyal to those in authority over them. There's a posture here of respect. That's what a servant leader does. Have you ever heard the saying? That's what we say in West Texas, the saying. Have you ever heard the saying, you can't effectively lead if you've never learned to follow? 
You can't effectively lead anybody if you've never followed. Anybody been in the military? You know this really well. That they bring you in and you follow orders. And then at some point you get to lead. You know, when I think about that in the church, I can think about myself as a young man. (laughs) I want to lead. But I had to learn to follow. I had to learn to set up chairs on a Sunday morning, help with the stage, serve. I had to learn to serve even though I thought I had better decisions than the lead guy in front of me for 17 years as a youth guy, right, and as an executive pastor, I had to learn to follow, and it was the best thing for me. I didn't believe that at the time. Story, though, after story in the church, and it's, I think sometimes it's more particular to men. It's not always men, but sometimes, man, we, we have this desire to lead, and I've watched it where you guys have leadership gifts and abilities, but they don't want to follow. They don't want to serve. They've got all the answers. And so if you put them in a place where they've got an answer to anybody, they blow it up. And we have problems. And then they leave one church and they go to the other church. And guess what? Now they're really on the bottom of the totem pole, if you will. And simple things like participating on Sunday morning or serving in different ways. And like, well, don't you know, right? Don't you know I'm this great leader, Do you see Nehemiah here? He's willing to follow. He's willing to submit to leadership, which makes him a great candidate for leadership. I've watched it in the church too long, where you just see serving as jumping through hoops to do what you want. You see your gifts and abilities, and sometimes the churches are the worst at elevating people who have gifts and abilities, but they don't have godly character and a heart to serve. And I'll tell you, in our church, we value servant leadership that nobody's too good to serve and to follow. See, God prepares leaders by having them serve under authority, and he molds them And he shapes them. And we all struggle with authority in one way or another, don't we? I can do it better. I want to do it my way. Are you willing to serve and submit? The best leaders learn how to follow. Kids, if you're a kid in here, man, maybe maybe you're the youngest in your family. You're like, man, the dog has more power in my home than I do. Right? My siblings have more to say than... My parents are over me, my teachers are over me, my bus driver's over, everybody's over me. God is using that in your life, and it's not often fun. It's often painful, but God is using it in your life to cultivate a servant's heart. Adults, maybe you're a young adult, and maybe you got a, like, crusty old boss that's, you know, older than 35, you know, and he doesn't know anything, or she doesn't know anything, and you know everything, and you have these great plans and ideas, and you probably do. And it may be that they're just kind of stuck in a rut, but what is God doing in your life to remind you that, hey, maybe not yet. Maybe these are good plans, but maybe later on to submit, even when you might not agree. And maybe you're like middle age, and you're in like middle management. I would say Nehemiah's kind of been middle management here, right? 
He's a guy under authority, but he has other people under him, and that's a hard role. It's a hard role because you don't really have a lot of power, ultimately, and yet you are expected to manage everyone else really well, and if there are any problems, it's coming to you, and so you have to take care of problems, and you know, you have to also weigh this deal where you take initiative to start new things or do new things, but if you take too much initiative and the boss doesn't know, now the boss is surprised, and it's never good if the boss is surprised, right? So godly leaders are wise about being respectful to authority over him and to navigate it well. I love this picture of how Nehemiah has a burden, he has a desire, and yet he navigates the authority, the earthly king over him, and yet he desires to please his heavenly father, his heavenly king. Do you see it? So Nehemiah teaches us respect and honor of authority, but he's got to ask this man what he's been praying about. He's been praying about asking Artaxerxes to leave his post, to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall, right? Look at verses 3 through 5. And so there's a time to have a burden. There's a time to pray. But there's also a time to act. The second point is this. Godly leaders are also boldly courageous and wisely tactful. Boldly courageous, wisely tactful. This is what I think you see with Nehemiah. He's courageous. We've already said it. King Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 4 is the guy. He's the guy who has said, the rebuilding is going to stop. It's going to stop. When a king orders a decree, that's a big deal. And you know what he says in Ezra 4? Not until I say so will it start up again. And here's the little cupbearer that comes along and is going to do what? What's Nehemiah about to do? He's, a, he's asking the king to reverse his decree. That's a big deal. He's not Persian. He's an exile, Jewish exile. Who's the cupbearer? He's courageous to even consider asking a king to reverse a political position, a policy. And yet, do you notice even after he asks for it and he gets it, he asks for more than that. He asks for Persia to pick up the tab. Do you see it? Artaxerxes says, hey, okay, you can leave, go figure it out. Nehemiah is courageous enough to go, hey, can I get some timber from Lebanon? Can I go to Asaph and get some timber? Timber, if you know the Middle East, even then, was a commodity. They protected the timber because there wasn't a lot of it. There's a lot of rocks and a lot of sand. And he's asking for materials to go build the temple and build his own house. That's bold. That's courageous. Do you see his boldness? Last, I would say he's courageous in this way. He's in the capital city, the winter palace in Susa. I mean, he's chilling, y'all. He's got it good. He's got a Tesla to drive. He's got, he's got all he needs. He's comfortable. His life is good. He gets the royal food. I mean, maybe he gets off by it, but he gets all that he needs in Susa, but his burden is so great that he's saying, no, I want to go back to Jerusalem. What's the description of Jerusalem right now? Gates are on fire. City's broken, totally destroyed. Oh, and there's bad guys there 
They're going to present opposition to you. Not just when you get there, but all the way on the way. He's courageous because he has a burden and he's put it before the Lord. Man, are we so bold. But he's also, I want you to notice this. He's also extremely tactful. You've seen it in the way that he's honored the king in this text. If it pleases the king, if you would have favor. But I want you to notice some things that maybe on first read, you, you, you might not notice. He goes before, I mean, King Artaxerxes, it's as if God is working behind the scenes or something. He's sad. Where does that conversation lead to? What do you need? What are you requesting before me? I mean, King Artaxerxes puts the ask on a T for Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, rather than saying, hey, I don't like your political policy, and he didn't. I don't like it that a few years ago, apparently, or a little while ago, that you stopped the rebuilding of the temple and the city and the gates. That hurts my people. Did he go before the king and do that? How's that going to work for him? He didn't get political with it. He didn't attack it. He didn't talk about the injustice of it. He got personal. And he said, my father's remains, my family's remains are in ruins. He says, here's the way in which that decision that you made has affected me and affected my people. Do you see the personal nature of his request? Not only that, if you know Persians and if you know what they think about ancestors, they were, Persians were really particular. They were really particular about the tombs and the graves of their ancestors. And so it would have struck a chord with the Persian king because the Persian king cared about his ancestors and their tombs and graves. He's smart. He's wise to do it this way. So he's tactful. He makes a personal plea. He appeals to his family needs. But it's interesting because he doesn't overshare. Anybody else got an oversharing problem? Especially if you have conflict or you have something you want to see happen. Anybody, any external processors out here where you're processing and you're talking and you, he doesn't do that. He shares his specific needs. He's had four months. I think in that four months, he's not just, he's not just praying, he's planning. He's planning all the things that he's doing here. He's courageous and he's tactful. He doesn't overshare. Notice in that, he doesn't even mention the name Jerusalem. That's where he's going. He says what? The city of Judah to my fathers. I don't think he's being deceptive. But he knows that the, the phrase Jerusalem will stir up in the king's heart. Maybe some negative connotations back from Ezra. And so he's wise. He's tactful about the way in which he asks. You ever seen this before in scripture? You have. Esther before him. Queen Esther goes before her husband, Xerxes. Do you remember the plot with Haman? Where Haman says he manipulates King Xerxes to basically kill all the Jews? And they're at a party. And King Xerxes says to his wife, Esther, the Jewish queen, what, what do you want? What, what is your request? Right time, right place, what does she say? She doesn't say to her husband, 
your political decision creates a massive genocide and injustice. Stop it. Is that how she said it? No, it was more tactful than that. If it pleases the king, I would rather die than have my people die. So if, you, if, if I die, can my people live? Can you rescue my people from your own decree? And it's as if Xerxes is like, what are you talking about? It's like a husband. We don't know what's going on, right? <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, he had either not realized that the decree that he made would affect his wife and affect all the Israelites and they would die because that's what Haman wanted. And once Xerxes knew about what was actually happening, he said, who is this man that's done this in my court? And she points at Haman, and then Haman gets hung. She was tactful. She was courageous, but she was tactful. Sometimes we need to learn that, to be courageous and tactful, but I think there's ditches here for us, aren't there? Some of us are really, I am, very courageous, and we have a lot of zeal, but we have no tact. <laughs> we got a lot of passion and zeal, but we have no tact. Instead of appealing on a personal level to help people see how their decisions affect us, man, we go into full attack mode, don't we? We got a lot of passion and we don't have much tact, full-scale attack, and we share, we overshare and all the ways which the decision is bad, that rarely works out for anybody. It might lose you your job or your position. So maybe using less words, and for some of us that's hard. When we're frustrated or we have passion and zeal and we process things as we're going. I get in trouble all the time with that. We process things as we're going and, and, and there's no wisdom and discernment. Sometimes I have to write it down, y'all. I have to write it down shorter and sweeter. Proverbs 10, 19 speaks of this. You know, sometimes brutal honesty isn't a virtue, right? We claim it's a virtue, and oftentimes it's not a virtue, and it just doesn't work out very well. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. He who restrains his lips is wise, Proverbs 13, 3. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And then there's the other side of the ditch. So that's one side of the ditch. Courageous, a lot of zeal, no tact, no wisdom. The other side of the ditch is, man, I'm a person that's very tactful, very caring, very thoughtful, apologizes 14 times before they get to the point, right? But there's not courage to pull the trigger. There's not courage to do the hard thing, to ask the hard question, the thing that needs to happen. Thoughtful, no delivery. You ever seen The Wizard of Oz? You know the different characters in The Wizard of Oz? I know I'm old. Like Some of you are like, Wizard of Oz, that's really old. You got Dorothy from Kansas, and you got the different characters. They're all missing something. Remember the lion? Supposed to be courageous. He's lacking courage. Dorothy, though, She's pretty bold, maybe a little bit too courageous. 
Where do you land in that? Maybe it's better just to give you a real life example. I've got a picture of a guy, a friend of mine. When I think of a guy who is just naturally courageous and has learned to be tactful, my good friend, I have a picture of him, Kurt Williams. Kurt Williams, older guy in the picture. He's got some boys around him up there. Kurt Williams uh, grew up in Alabama, great home, Christian family. His parents did it right, but he became a troubled, troubled teen. He became a troubled teen. He was an adrenaline junkie, and then he became a junkie in different ways and got all kinds of trouble. And that trouble landed him on, as a young adult on the streets of Montrose in Houston. I don't know if you've ever been to Houston and you know Montrose. He's basically a young adult on the streets, no home, kicked out of every place, lost all the jobs he had. He was a street kid on the streets. He comes to know Jesus on the streets of Montrose in Houston. And the scales begin to come off, and he notices all these other street kids in Montrose that have the same story as he has. He had a little apartment down in Montrose. And he begins to just bring all of these kids like himself in and share the gospel with them and disciple them, see them come to know the Lord. He's like, I don't know what God is doing in this, but I have a burden for the burden that I had and the place that I was. God, would you open the door to figure out where are we going to put these kids? Because they're in my apartment, but they're just going back. We got to get out of Montrose, effectively. And he found someone, 1984, this is 1984, in 1985, he found somebody that would donate a home on the east side of Houston and Pasadena. And he brought all these boys there. And then in 1991, they opened Youth Reach Houston. Youth Reach Houston is a place where troubled boys could come to have a second chance. Under the word of God, gospel-centered ministry, led by the guy who had a burden, who prayed, who strategized, who was courageous enough to look around and go, these kids need God, they need the gospel, what are we going to do about it? I'm just going to leave that burden over here, what are we going to do about it? And I've known Kurt since 2005, and I've walked through and prayed with him over all kinds of things, with state regulations, them wanting to have a Christian influence on these kids' lives, and all the troubles and ups and downs of raising money and finances and state regulations, and watched the Lord bless it, and watched him be courageous and also learn to be tactful and learn how to influence. Kurt Williams, if you need a ministry to support this is a beautiful ministry to support Youth Reach Houston. They've expanded to Youth Reach Alabama, Gulf Shores, even to Costa Rica now. They're developing one. There's been over 2,500 young men from ages 12 to 21, and they've changed it to 12 to 17, that have been blessed. Troubled boys been blessed because a guy had a burden, because a guy was prayerful with that burden that he had before the Lord, because a guy was courageous enough to do something about it and set it before the Lord and say, what are you going to do? So godly leaders are courageous. Godly leaders are also tactful. 
So Nehemiah gets his yes. Do you see it here? He gets the yes, which is miraculous. And he asks the king all these questions, and the answer is still yes. In those moments when you've done all that planning and all that praying, and I had all that burden, and somebody asks you, how'd this happen? What's the tendency in our hearts to do when we've got the mic and we get to testify? Look what I did. You might not say it out loud, right? Look at what Nehemiah does with it. The third point, and you see it in verses six, six through eight. Third point is this. Godly leaders make strategic plans, but they leave the results in God's good hands. You see these strategic plans? He asked, the, the, he knew the king would ask him, how much time are you going to be gone? And he has an answer. We're not told the answer in here. In this text, we know he stays and he becomes the governor of Judah. And he stays for quite a long time until the building of the wall is done. He comes back and then he goes back. But he had an answer for the king when asked. He's planning. Not only, and really A to Z planning, I would say. He doesn't just say, hey, I've got faith and this is all going to happen. He plans in that four months. He's been planning. It's really clear. He knows what he needs. He knows when he leaves Susa that there are governors in each province. They're going to ask him for basically a passport and papers. And so he asked the king up front. He gets the yes, and then he knows what to ask. He asked for letters, and these letters would give him protection as well as safe passage all the way to Judah. Here's the seal of the king. The king says, I can come through. That's what letters are. He's planning. This is a strategic plan. He's also come up with contingencies. He's asking specifically about Asaph, who is the head of the forest brigade, basically, because he needs to get timber from Lebanon, likely, to make this thing work. The timber is going to serve to build back the walls, build back the gates, and also Nehemiah's thought through where he's going to be. His home in Jerusalem is knocked down. He needs wood to rebuild a home. So while he is building this thing, he's got a place to stay. Has he thought through this deal? Absolutely. He's thought through the whole thing. And yet, look at his answer. When the king, in verse 8, when the king grants what he asked, he doesn't take credit. He doesn't say, I'm just a really good planner. I'm really tactful. I'm really courageous. I'm a leader who's respectful to the king. He doesn't bring attention to himself when he has the mic. What does he say? He says this. For, here's the reason. Here's why all these doors have been open for me. And even if he, they weren't, he would still, I think, praise God. God's good hand was upon me. He understands really clearly that there's no way, even through all the planning and all the courage and all the tactfulness and all the respect that he can give the king, that the king on his own is just going to say, yeah, because you're so great. That's not what's happening here. He sees that it's God who is providentially working. He sees that it's God whose sovereign plan is coming together. Nehemiah just happens to be the instrument of that plan. So he has 
the burden, and yet he acknowledges that God is the one who is at work. You think about this in light of the scripture. There's a couple of other ditches I want to bring up. The word of God says this, a man plans his way. Proverbs 16, 9. A man plans his way, but what? God directs his path, his steps. You can plan all you want, but God's going to do what he's going to do. Proverbs 21, 31 says this. It says, ready the horse for battle. That's action. That's planning in the midst of a war. And yet the victory belongs to who? The Lord. The Lord's going to win the battle. You plan. You get the horse ready. God's going to do it. My old pastor says it this way. I've heard him say this a number of times, particularly about this text. He says this, God won't steer a parked car. God won't steer a parked car. And there's a couple of ditches in this, aren't there? Ditch one, and Christians sometimes were the worst, especially Reformed Christians who believe, and rightfully so, in the sovereignty of God, who believe in election, who believe that it's God that's at work providentially. Sometimes we're the worst. We're like, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. I don't have to do anything. Just have faith and trust him, and I don't have to start the car, right? That's not what I see with Nehemiah. I see Nehemiah trusting God, but I also see him planning and working because faith works. Faith is at work. Are we guilty of that? Do we tend to leave the car in park and just say, God, you do everything? God opens all those doors, but he wants to use you and me as an instrument. Do we tend to leave the car and park? And the other ditch is this, that Christians never say this. I don't say this out loud, out, out, out loud but sometimes I've got plans, and I'm in control of my plans, and if they work out, then I'll say, hey, God, good job. But really, they're my plans. And so the opposite ditch to the faith thing that we just trust God and we don't do anything, we don't work and we don't serve and we don't plan is, it's like, it's my plan. It's my car, I'll turn it on and I will drive it. I will steer the car. You ever been there? The people around you can tell you if that's what you're doing, if you ask them. Because they feel it. Sometimes we treat ministry this way. You know the name Tim Hawkins? I'm going to wake up a little bit. We're going to wake up a little bit here. Tim Hawkins, the Christian comedian. I know I'm, Christianity is serious. We have a serious faith, but sometimes we need to laugh. And sometimes we need to laugh at ourselves. Some of you are like, no, I'm not going to do that. Tim Hawkins, he has this, uh, he's like the older school John Christ, Christian comedian. He has this little skit that he does, my little helper in the car. Anybody know it? Well, he's basically talking about marriage and ladies, excuse me, I'm going to get to a better point here. But, it, but he talks about in marriage, what he learned is, is when he got in the car, that he has a little helper in the car. And that little helper in the car, I, I feel the eyes right now. <laughs> that little helper in the car is so helpful that she tells me when the light is green. That she tells me how fast I'm going. you got to go see this kid. I can't do it justice, nor am I going to try. You got all this help in the car that we didn't know how to park and I didn't know how to get to where I was going and all these things. And we put that oftentimes on our wives. 
But let me ask you on a more serious note. On a more serious note, as we think about our faith and we think about our own plans and what we want to do, oftentimes isn't that what we do with God? Who's supposed to be steering the car? Who is steering the car, by the way? Just FYI. Hey, God, light's green over there. It's not red. Where are we going? Hey, God, you're on the opposite end. You're going too fast. Can you just slow down? He's driving. He's steering. Or the best one, when there's a bump, this deal, right? God, don't you know? Hey, watch out. He's got it. He's steering the car. Maybe it's the control that we think that we have. But Nehemiah, see, you see it here, man. You see his plans. You see him moving forward. You, you see him waiting for the yes, if it's yes, and knowing. He's planning. He's strategically planning. And yet he's trusting God to steer the car. Nehemiah's had a burden. He prays. He acts. The king says yes. He gives him everything he wants. I want you to notice something. It's in next week's text, but in verse 9, not only does God give him what he asked for, he gives him more. In verse 9, they leave, they're leaving Jerusalem, and they go out, and the text says that King Artaxerxes not only gave him all the things he asked for, but he gave him officers from the army and horsemen to protect him. Not only does God change hearts, he gives us more oftentimes than we ask for. He does this with Nehemiah. And when I think about this particular text, there's one other text that I think of because I think it beautifully summarizes what God is doing in our lives. And God is doing right here, Proverbs 21.1. Look at this. I, I couldn't have drawn up a better text for this situation. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. When you and I think of a stream, maybe you think of that vacation. You were in Colorado this summer where it was a lot cooler. And the, and the stream that comes down from the mountain is just this free-flowing stream. That's not what he's talking about here. In the Hebrew, this is like an irrigation, the stream, the idea of stream is like an irrigation canal that comes out of the main aquifer, the main water source that is built that flows down to a dry and weary land that is flat and needs sustenance and needs water. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the king. And then it says it tur he turns it, God turns the king's heart where he wishes. The word turn here is just bending. That God bends the king's heart. If I put all that together, here's how it reads in the Hebrew. Like an irrigation canal carrying water is the heart of the king in the God's hands. God causes the king's heart to bend in whatever direction he pleases. See also King Artaxerxes' heart in the hands, the good hands, of the king. This is what God is doing through the instrument of Nehemiah. God's the one who changes hearts. Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, I don't know if you know this, but it's basically Nehemiah's memoirs. So he's taking all the things that he's recorded and they're writing it down. And so when you, when you have memoirs, you're, you're probably reading back through those memoirs when they're being 
assimilated and putting back together. Can you imagine later on in life being Nehemiah and putting these memoirs together and, and, and thinking back, man, do you remember what God did? I mean, I can't believe I asked for what I asked for. And he said yes. I can't believe the king said yes to all those things and God gave me even more. He's faithful. He's looking back on this. And I can imagine him saying something like this. And this is your takeaway today. Because this is the God that you serve. I can imagine him saying, the good hand of our good God brings good gifts to the good work of God's people. That's a lot of good. My English teacher, my mom over here, she would take off. Grammarly would take off, good, four, five times, good. That's your God, good God. Good hand of a good God brings good gifts to the good work. It's what Nehemiah has been working on, the people of God. Do you believe that? If you know Jesus, you know the good hand of God, the strong hand of God in your life because you and I were sinful. And the Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There's nothing you could bring, nothing in your hands that you could bring to make you right with a holy God. And yet you have a Savior who is submitted to the authority above him, who submitted and went to a cross for you and for me and died in your place. Trusting the good hand of his Father, whose good plans brought forth your forgiveness and eternal life for you. So we can continually say as well, both in our salvation and as we live this life, through all the bumps and all the ways in which we want to push the pause button and remind God what's going on in our lives, we can continue to say, with our burdens, with our prayers. However he answers those, those, by the way, it just so happens here that he answers his prayer. But whether God says yes or no or wait, or maybe you have a good God whose good hand brings good gifts to the work of God's people. Let me pray.